it's got to be weirdly humbling, right? You are at the top of your sport, the most powerful player known to humankind, and then an AI comes in and kicks your butt. And, but he's being a little dramatic about it by, like, retiring. Well, I mean, you know, he beat it once, so that's cool. Welcome to the Impromptu Board Gaming Podcast. Today, we have a special guest joining the panel to discuss lifestyle games. Later in the game show, we'll see who can name the most board games. But first, these are some of the games we've been playing recently. And I'm your host, Paul. And I'm Andrew. So today, David's going to be joining us a little later. He had a previous engagement, so he's not going to be here. I want to take this moment to introduce our special guest, Brad. Hello there. Brad's what I would call a real expert on the topic. Before we get there, though, I just wanted to thank Brad for letting us use his music for the show. The intro music, the outro music, and the uh, interstitial uh, transition music, that all comes from Brad's band. Uh, Brad, if you want to go ahead and give him a plug, uh, here's your chance. Our band was called The Evil Beat. We were a nine-piece ska band. Our claim to fame was at uh, this was at Kenyon College in Ohio back in the late 90s. We won our battle with the bands, and we opened for De La Soul at the big party at the end of the year. So, yeah, that's it. Cool. So if you wonder where the music comes from, that's where it comes from. Let's just go into games we've been playing recently. Just last night, I got a chance to play Lowlands. Uh, either of you guys played that before? I think you were the one who showed it to me many years ago. Oh, wow. It's definitely been years since I've played it. So, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, what were your impressions now that you've revisited it? It was a teaching game. There are four of us. I was teaching two people, and a fourth person had played before. So, it took me a while to kind of, like, reacquaint myself with all the uh, mechanics to teach it. And I still really like it. Just so everybody knows, this is Lowlands, published in 2018 by, by designer Claudia Partenheimer. And Ralph Partenheimer. So I'm guessing they're a couple. Maybe brother and sister. <laughs> and uh, this came out in 2018. I believe it got the seal of approval from Uwe Rosenberg. Wow. That's high praise. Yeah, yeah. This game just sort of came and went for a little while. And the only reason like it's on anyone's radar is because Uwe Rosenberg said, hey, this thing's pretty good. Take a look at it. And a lot of people did. And... I think some people really liked it, and other people just sort of, like, uh, thought, oh, yeah, this is fine, and then moved on. So I I don't see it played a lot lately, but I still really like it. The theme is basically uh, the players work together, and they all live in this lowlands that tends to flood a lot. So it's behooven on everyone to participate in the building of a uh, giant dam to hold the water back and prevent that flooding. So the game, and at the same time, you're also building your own farm of sheep. All the points are scored in either A, uh, how much you participate in the building of the dam, or B, how many sheep you have at the end of the game. And if you get flooded, like if the if the dam doesn't hold, you ultimately lose sheep, uh, and uh, you know it affects your scoring. And I always like that sort of communal participation in a, a community project. And then the person who who contributes the least ultimately gets punished or scores the worst. I'd always like that concept in the game. 
Yeah, that kind of uh, mechanic is nice because, like, in a lot of games, depending who you play with, they pl you play in a very sort of cutthroat manner, like, absolutely don't do anything to help someone else, etc. That type of mentality is very prevalent. So it's nice to have that sort of refreshing change every once in a while. I think that still happens a little bit, but this game sort of forces you to help each other in a really kind of fun and interesting way. So one of the mechanics is when you contribute to the dam, you contribute X number of resources and you build it. And then as a mechanic, you are forced to ask one of the other players if they would like to contribute. So, uh, and if they say, and it's, it's completely optional, it's up to them. And if they contribute, they can contribute as much as you did or less. They can't contribute more than you did. But if they do contribute, you get an extra bump, as if you had contributed an extra resource. So let's say I contributed three, three, and then I asked Andrew, hey, do you want to contribute? And then Andrew put in two. I would effectively have moved four spaces on the track, and then Andrew would move two. And so it's this, you're forced to interact with each other and say, hey, uh, do you want to give me a hand building this dam? Which is pretty advantageous in two ways. One, whoever you ask, basically saves an action. Like, they can contribute to the dam without actually using their own uh, worker. It's a worker placement game, so they don't have to use their own worker to take that action, which is pretty big. And then who you ask becomes this fun question of like, hmm, do I really want this dam to uh, score well or do I want the dam to break down? So do I ask the person with a lot of resources or do I ask the person with, like, no resources? <laughs> and let, yeah, let the dam break and but it really plays with that cutthroat interaction. And it's it does it in a way that I haven't seen before, because I can't think of a game where you take an action and then you ask someone else if they want to participate in that action. Just one player uh, to participate with you in that, uh, in that action. Yeah, I can't think of another game that does it, does it like that. Uh, Andrew, what have you been playing lately? Uh, last couple of weeks, I've been playing Dune Imperium, which is a, it's a deck builder in the sort of Dune universe world um with a worker placement twist uh i forget when it came out but it's been a pretty big hit apparently there's two expansions out for it now or something it was crazy uh time flies etc but uh yeah um i think i played it around when it first came out then had a big break then recently came back to it last couple weeks and it is still very fun and solid yeah, I, I think the way the worker placement element interacts is so e each card essentially has these symbols that mean that if you play it to deploy a worker, those symbols tell you, sort of restrict which locations your worker can go to. Um, so that makes sort of like trashing cards a bit more interesting than a typical deck builder because you have to sort of balance which locations. You have to be careful not to accidentally um, deny or cut yourself off access to certain locations as part of the game, which is a sort of immediate nice little twist. Uh, Brad, did you, have you ever played this game? I have, have at least heard of this one. Um, I know it's quite popular. I, I hadn't even heard of the of Lowlands. Um, but no, I've not played it. Uh, I've not seen it played. So uh, unfortunately, I don't have much to add. Oh, no worries. No worries. So for those of you who don't know, Dune Imperium came out in 2020, around the same time as Lost Ruins of Arnak. Dude, Imperium came out around the same time as Lost Rune of, of Arnak. And when it came out, they're both very similar. They're both worker placement games with a deck building element. And a lot of people were in love with 
asking the question, oh, which do you like better? Do you like this worker placement game with the deck building element better than this other one? And the, the comparison was always between Dune Imperium and Lost Ruins of Arnak. Personally, I find the question a little weird because you're either oring. The question is an either or question. Which one do you like better? But really, you can like them both or like neither of them too. Those are two other very valid options that are that are there. And I always thought the question was weird. But anyway, the thing that that strikes out for me for that question is that if you actually play the two, they play very. They feel, at least to me, they feel very, very different. Like, I would consider Dune Imperium to fall more in line with the traditional deck builder, like Dominion, whereas Arnak feels a bit more like its own thing. Yeah, I 100% agree. That's another reason why I thought the question itself was kind of weird. Because, yes, they're both worker placement games and both deck building games, but they feel so different. So I don't understand why you need to compare them, or why a comparison of them, or why everyone's so fascinated by this comparison. It, it's fun to compare them, because, like, on paper, there it looks like there's a lot of similarities, but it, once you play them, the, co- the comparison just feels so irrelevant, just falls apart, because they're very different. Yeah, I agree. So, I just want to jump in, actually. So, uh, do you guys know Eric Vogel? He's a, a designer. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, he's a friend of mine, and uh, I just uh, want to give a little credit. I, I doubt he was the first one to do this combo, but he has a game called Don't Turn Your Back. From 2015, which incorporates the deck building worker placement mechanic, where you have your deck and you're placing the cards on the board uh, to take an action hmm. and preventing others from taking that exact action. So this this combo has been around for a while now. Oh, okay. Cool, cool. Nice. I, I 100% did not know that. Yeah, he's my friend, but I will say that it's a quite enjoyable game. I, 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 I like it a lot. So don't turn your back. <laughs> nice plug, nice plug. Okay, I remember, uh, what was it? I remember playing this game, and I really liked it. It's kind of, it goes in the category of a game that I really like that I'm really bad at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think that's one of the sort of the marks of a really great game, which is I can play it, I will have a good time, I will probably lose, but I still enjoy like what I'm trying to do, building a, a cool deck or like you know what figuring out what's the most advantageous move in it or just I enjoy playing it enough that I don't mind losing at it. And uh, there's enough to learn there that I could definitely go back to it and uh, play it many more times. And uh, since we're already there, I don't much care for our Lost Ruins of Arnak. So what are you gonna do? <laughs> I like that one. I've only played it a couple. Oh, you times. like that one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I enjoyed cool. it. Cool. Okay. Cool. 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 No, they're both. They're both. They're both solid. I think I enjoy Imperium, Dune Imperium, a bit more than Arnak. But it might have just been I was thrown off from Arnak because it doesn't feel like a sort of traditional deck builder, and that caught me off guard. <laughs> right. I heard deck builder. Okay, I had an idea of what it would be like. It was not like that. It was not quite like that. I have to admit the the controls in it, the restrictions in it are really interesting. The yeah. how it controls the way you cycle through the deck really like forces you to really think carefully about what cards you're buying when you put it into the deck, which I thought was very interesting. I was like, oh wow, no other game really does it like this, and you honestly have to like be careful and like like craft your deck kind of carefully when you're moving forward. Usually, you know, in any deck builder, you're just like, oh, this card's good. You just buy it, and you do what it does. And you're hoping to, you know, do it a lot. But you're not really crafting something precise 
Whereas I feel like in Arnak, you're definitely trying to craft something fairly precise in in what you're doing. Well, it, it helps that the deck size is small, right? Uh, c- correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a long time, you know, been over a year. But yeah, uh, the deck size being small definitely helps that to happen. Whereas a game like Dominion, you gotta you gotta trash a bunch of cards before you get the small deck. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it. that's very true. Yeah, and the small small deck size in Arnak is kind of necessary, given that the game only lasts for like five rounds. That's a good point. All right, hey Brad, uh, what have you been playing lately? Well, not a whole lot because life has gotten in the way. But I did my uh, my wife Mulan. Uh, she and I uh, hosted a couple friends. Uh, who are not board gamers. So we played Cartographers. That's been kind of my go-to game for uh, newbies. Isn't that a roll-write game? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry. I probably should start with that. Uh, This is a game from 2019. The designer's name is Jordi Adon, or maybe Aiden. I don't know. Aiden makes makes me sound like a, a Hoosier. Uh, someone from Indiana. So maybe Jordi Adon, I don't know. But anyway, uh, I'm not big on theme. I just like mechanics. But just to give the quick spiel, uh, you and your fellow players are cartographers and you're trying to map territory by whatever the queen wants. And so um, that's the extent of the theme I'll talk about. Long story short, you there are scoring conditions which can change every game. And will change. There, you know, there's a little, um, it's a very small group of cards for that will correspond to scoring for each of the rounds, and you can change those up every game, so that makes it have nice replayability. But basically, you're going to be drawing Tetris type pieces on your little, on your board, your paper. Everybody has their own paper. Basically, you're drawing Tetris type pieces on your paper. You can, of course, just use pencil. We like to use colored pencils that correspond to the colors of the different landscapes because uh, it just looks prettier. It's, it's more fun, we think. And the fa- my favorite thing about this game is, you know, you've got you've got your paper, you're you're filling it up with stuff, and then you turn a card, and it's a monster, and it, and it indicates which direction you have to hand it to, and so then your opponents get to screw with you, drawing monsters in a particular configuration, whatever's on the card, to mess up your board and then each orthogonally adjacent space next to the monsters is going to be negative one point for you every round the rest of the game until you fill it up with any other landscape type so you've got these competing goals you've got the scoring that is going to happen that round and will happen one other round during the game i won't go into detail on that but you know and then the other major thing are these monsters that are coming out and you need to i like to say you have to surround them with love which is just literally anything else uh and then they won't score that negative point against you but so basically monsters need to be taken care of pretty quickly which is thematic but i like this game a lot it's very easy for newbies to pick up i have played it i mean i have the app i've played it literally I don't know about hundreds of times, but uh, well over a hundred times if you count the app. It's still fun for me. This may have been a, another unfortunate case of, of timing for this game, but it, it's really great for what it is. It's playing time. It says 30 to 45 minutes. Like always, that's a lie. Uh, I'm looking at the Board Game Geek description. Uh, games always take longer than this. You know, if you had four experienced players, you could you could 
crank it out in 45 minutes, I think. But in my opinion, this as a teaching game with newbies, this will take well over an hour. I think that's what they do do with it. Like they always make those time assessments based on experienced players. Yeah. yeah well, even I mean, thirty. I mean, two people who are experienced could play this in thirty minutes. That's fair. But I don't know. I'm also uh, I, uh, I'm considered to be the uh, the AP uh, analysis paralysis player. I'm typically the slowest player for a lot of games. So maybe that's just my own personal bias. But I, I think we can all agree that. Those estimated time playing times are usually on the quick side, uh, even compared to experienced players. I'm seeing here on Board Game Geek the the weight is 1.89 out of five, which is really hard to find something under two. I guess that's fair, but I don't want people to think that because that number is so low that it's a waste of time, even for experienced players, because it's it's not. It is. It's not a waste of time. It is. This game is great. It, it, it's certainly not a brain burner, but there are always interesting decisions. Yeah, I feel like that board game geek rating is really about ease of entry. Like, how easy is the game to learn? But then some people take it as how complex is the game as a whole, which, you know, those two are not necessarily the same thing. Yeah, I was just going to say, there's a fairly big overlap on the Venn diagram, I would say, on those two. Yeah, that's true. But uh, anyway, oh, and I'm looking at some of the the images on Board Game Geek of the, of the stuff people have drawn. Holy cow! I was talking about you know just using colored pencils. Apparently, this is very typical for players. Oh, for sure. Some of the images on here are just gorgeous. Like wow, people really spent a lot of time <laughs> drawing their pictures. Like you know, when you first start playing it, it's just pencil, and you know you, that's all you got, and then. Wow, yeah, check out. Yeah, it's it's fun to see some of the stuff that people have drawn. That's way more detailed than even Mulan does, and she used to be a, a you know, in her past, she, or at least she was trained to be a scientific illustrator. So, uh, anyway, you can make your images, you can draw your your stuff as detailed and pretty as you want to. That can be a part of the game in and of itself. Yeah, I remember this game too. I played it once, but I played it online, so I used the tabletop simulator version of it. And I remember being very impressed by this game. I was like, because uh, roller rights are okay, but I find a lot of them to be very similar. And this one was doing something really different and like really enjoyable. Like it was a fun puzzle to figure out. And then when you let your opponents kind of throw a monkey wrench into your program, I mean, that simultaneously feels really rough but like really fun too so yeah i was thoroughly impressed by this game uh, i haven't gotten a chance to play it in a while but i remember this one blowing up pretty big to the point where they came out with like new versions of the game eliminating the the right the writing part of the of the game and just making pieces for it so they would have like your uh tetraomino pieces and they would just have them and you could just put them into uh, a live version and you wouldn't have to draw anything you would just get the pieces and put them onto your board or something oh that's really fun yeah and i was like oh wow this game must be pretty popular for them to make a version that does this so i don't know if there was like someone made it themselves or was it actually a production copy but i was like oh clearly this game is super popular and yeah i think it, that's deserved I hadn't even heard of any such thing. That sounds very interesting, and I, I will have to look for it. it. So there's a Heroes expansion. I like the thematic nature in particular of this expansion. There are different monsters. My favorite monster is the zombie. 
So the zombie, if someone attacks you, the zombie is just an individual square. But if you don't address the four orthogonal uh, uh, parts to that square, then uh, it will expand just like zombies do. So if you don't address it quickly enough, you're going to have a nightmare on your hands. Uh, oh, interesting. With all the zombies taking over your board. And the other monsters have thematic uh, aspects as well, which is pretty cool. Like the dragons, like if you... So the moment you surround all the, dra the the dragon spaces, then you get eight coins, you know, which which is another part of the game, which is very thematic, very cool. Uh, the other thing is, rolling rights are just okay, Paul. What the heck? It's my favorite uh, mechanic that has uh, come into recent uh, popularity. Yeah, exactly. If you have you played, goodness, my brain is melting. There are two rolling rights that everyone needs to check out. One is Hadrian's Wall. It is not recommended. For new uh, game, you know, new gamers. So this is for this is a brain burner. A lot going on. Uh, you know, I don't want to delve too deeply into it, but uh, probably my favorite roll and write. And the other one, I'm I'm just I'm blanking. Yeah, I remember Hagen's Wall. I really I liked it. It was definitely very involved, very complicated. I just meant mostly like Gonshan Clever. Welcome to, and a lot of those games when they first came out just felt very similar to me. Like it's clearly like it's you roll this, you pick what you want, you pick the action, or you pick the the random action that hopefully chains into other random actions, and and creates a really big turn, and you hope that it gets big enough. Or I, I remember that, and you know I thought them they were pretty novel, but a lot of them seem to just play very similarly so i you know didn't get super into them i think that that's fair a lot of the first ones i played were fun and kind of uh like welcome to is great because you can actually play that with as long as everyone can see it like if you project it up the the various stuff everybody like a ton of people could play it like as a party game you know like a whole bunch but i think the mechanic has evolved a lot uh, just in a few years uh, with Hadrian's Wall. And then the other game that I really want to trumpet its awesomeness is Fleet the Dice Game. I play, M Mulan and I played the heck out of this game. Uh, we loved it. Obviously, uh, it's got dice, so it's truly a, a roll and write. Um, tons of replayability, lots of interesting decisions when you roll those dice and you decide, okay, what am I going to take? And then What's that going to allow other people to take? And then, yeah, just 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 great fun. Check out Fleet the Dice Game. Yeah, I remember the original Fleet. I don't think I've played the Dice Game. I have not played the original Fleet, so. <laughs> Funny. I would say Fleet the Dice Game is the perfect game. Uh, newbies can learn it, and experienced players uh, will love it as well. All right, today's discussion topic is lifestyle games. Uh, I specifically wanted to cover this one because, well, quite frankly, I hadn't heard any other podcasts want, like, really talk about it or really go into it, so here's hoping we're the first. Otherwise, uh, it's just going to be some retreads of everybody else's stuff. So let's uh, start with a definition of what a lifestyle game is. From the re research into the definition, a lifestyle game is any game that takes on the form as the hobby itself. A good example lies in tabletop gaming. A person whose primary hobby is board games is not playing a lifestyle game, 
but a chess player is. A chess player pretty much dedicates him or herself to just playing chess, and it becomes the entirety of their hobby or extremely large percentage of their uh, recreational time is dedicated towards one game solely. Okay, so that's our definition. Okay. Yeah, right off the bat. The two biggest ones are probably going to be chess and go. There's a big enough range in skill level and enough to learn from each game that you could dedicate a lifetime to studying it and really not necessarily learn it all. It's true. And especially especially um, for those two games you mentioned, like with the more recent advances in technology as well, that's also sort of making big changes in how players learn and study and think about the game too, which means, once again, there's another big gulf to learn for those professional players to, to cross. So I, I have to wonder, based on this definition, what, how, do, how do like sports fit in? Because obviously, like, it, it's easy to forget that sports are ultimately games, right? And obviously, professional players can not only make a living, but, uh, well, hmm. I guess it's different because right, that's their job, it's not necessarily their, their like, recreational time. So yeah, that's, there's some good, uh, big overlap here. So like, people can learn chess, dedicate their lives to playing chess, ded- or dedicate their lives to playing Go, and uh, use that as a way to make a living. The two most notable would be like you go on the tournament circuit and you play in a bunch of tournaments and you place well and win a lot of money. The other would be you uh, can and or you can also um, be a like go instructor, uh, offer classes and uh, and as long as you have a big enough uh, student base, you could probably also make a living just teaching the game as well. So it's arguable, like, you know, sports is actually, that's a pretty fair one. You could call that a lifestyle game as well. You could do it as a, as a profession. And then you can also theoretically turn around and coach. And there's even more kind of lucrative um, professional opportunities there because you can also be a commentator. You can also be um, a writer, someone who, you know, writes articles and news articles about yeah. athletes or the sport itself or whatever else innovations are coming out. Yeah, definitely a lot of parallels. But then, like, you know, for some people, just if we go back to your original definition of yourself as something more recreational, like, there's a lot of... Almost any game can fulfill that requirement, too, at that point. So I think the key trait a game needs to have is to have more than 10,000 hours worth of content to study and enjoy. I'm basing 10,000 hours on uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, He's the one who indicated you needed more than Mm -hmm. Mm 10,000 hours of practice Mm -hmm. to master a skill. So if the game has that much content for you to honestly like go through and enjoy, then you can make that a lifestyle game. This one's pretty good. For Go, so uh, very similar chess. These are t- the two most long-running games uh, ever. They're the oldest games that are still played today in pretty much the same form. And there are worldwide tournaments th- through, what, most countries? Most first-world countries? 
So there are a lot of world tournaments for Go and chess. And you could definitely make a very healthy living just uh, playing one of those two games. The prize pool in chess is around 2.1 million annually. So if you're the guy at the, like the most powerful chess player ever you could theoretically enter and win every tournament and net your well i don't know about net but you could you can make up 2.1 million dollars possibly potentially uh not that one guy generally uh wins all the tournaments i want to know where the is it just like a buy-in like in poker like where's that 2.1 million coming from Tournament winnings are usually around like a hundred to three hundred thousand dollars for like the top prize. So if you're hitting all the top prizes of all the ter- of all the tournaments, like the biggest U.S. one, the biggest Russian one, the biggest uh, Germany, et cetera, et cetera, and you you could you could it adds up and you can make around two point one million dollars. Apparently, the one for Go is bigger. The uh, their tournaments in China, Japan, and South Korea, and. I think Japan has the most tournaments, and they are very lucrative. Like, if you could be the guy who wins all of those, I think I believe it's more than two point one million. I couldn't get an exact number because there's a lot of like currency conversions I needed to go through, and I was like, "Oh, that's just too many." I did not know that. I mean, it made sense. I just that'd be a bit big because again, these people have to basically invest their whole lives into learning and studying and playing. So, uh, so one big thing in this uh this this tournament scene especially is now that a artificial intelligence has been introduced and both in the realm of go and chess the best player theoretically uh uh can be non-human can be an ai and apparently it just can't be beat <laughs> It is very good, and especially for Go, it was such a huge deal because Go is a lot more complicated than chess. Yeah, it's very different. The The concepts in it are more abstract concepts, and like influence as a concept is much trickier than if my piece, you know, hits your piece, it takes it, and that's it. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a big upset when yeah. an AI could play Go and outplay the strongest human player. There's an article about that specifically, which I thought was hysterical. There's this guy from Korea, Lee Se-dol. He was considered the best human player ever. <laughs> and uh, he was pretty young. He, like, he was only like 26 when the AI came out. And uh, they, played a, they played a match, like I think a series of seven matches. And he won one game and, the, and then the AI won all the others. And he's the only human player to ever beat this AI. And that's it. Wow. And that was also an early version, too, because with AI, you can keep learning. And then after that match, he declared that he's retiring from the game of Go because it cannot be defeated. Wow. It's got to be weirdly humbling, right? You are at the top of your sport, the most powerful player known to humankind, and then an AI comes in and kicks your butt. And, but he's being a little dramatic about it by like retiring. Well, I mean, you know, he beat it once, so that's cool. This is, uh, I, I believe, it's been a few years since I've seen this, but this was actually covered in the movie Alpha Go. It's on Netflix, or at least it was at one point. 
and I remember enjoying this movie thoroughly. So if anyone is interested in uh, Lee Sedol's, uh story, check out AlphaGo on Netflix. Yeah, I was like, wow, this guy's taking it kind of hard. So let's move on a little bit to poker. Poker has a larger prize pool in cash prizes than Go or chess combined. Significantly more. In fact, a single tournament, the biggest tournament, the World Series of Poker main event, $10,000 buy-in, the prize pool for this single tournament alone in 2022 was $80.8 million. What was the first prize, top prize? Uh, Let's see here. Something like ten million dollars. Ten million dollars. Okay, so so the record's still set at uh, twelve point five million. Don't know the answer to that. If you if you have that information, then yes, twelve point five million. But I can tell you the price will peak at two thousand six, which was kind of after there's a, there's a player literally named Chris Moneymaker who won. He was like Joe Schmo. Like back in the day, if you go back to the history, back in the day of you know like the you know, 70s and 80s, this poker was nothing. Nobody watched this stuff. Like, dozens of players, maybe, I don't know, a couple hundred would be in the World Series, and, you know, somebody would win, and okay, yay. Uh, and then 2001 happened. Uh, Chris Moneymaker, you know, Joe Schmo, not a professional poker player, wins the World Series of poker, and poker just goes through the roof. Specifically, No no Limit Texas Hold'em. And 2006, price pool peaked at 82.5, and then the winner won 12.5 million. And then momentum was lost, but it is still very popular. And just from 2018 to 2022 alone, um, the price pool has gone from 74 million to 80 million. And obviously, first prize has increased uh, from there as well. So poker is still very much thriving in the United States and in the rest of the world. Okay. So, David, you're here? Hey. If you had to sort of uh, gauge, how many hours of poker do you need to play to really make a living at poker? Oh, boy. (laughs) My goodness. Uh, I mean... Any guesses? Like, from my understanding, a lot of it... So, in addition to, like, the math and the gambling and the risk-reward stuff, right, it's also, like, trying to pick up on people's habits and whatnot. The first half, the math part, that already takes a good number of hours and then you need to play some to like actually internalize it and learn it and get a feel and then factor in the learning the other people part you really can spend a lot right and i think i think a lot of poker players probably do yeah maybe once you make it big and you have enough money then you can set it aside but like (laughs) to get there that can be a, a pretty long ride i'm finding it a hard question to answer I don't even know if this is true. I was just trying to do a little research to to see if this if this number is true, but supposedly only 6% of poker players are profitable. I don't know if that's true. I, I would need to validate that that percentage. Well, so first of all, if if everyone buys in for say $50 into a tournament, the house is going to take a cut of that, right? So even if everyone is of equal skill, your expected value is gonna is not gonna be to uh, break even because the house is taking a cut. And in, in the same way, that's true with cash games, where uh, you're not trying to win a tournament last person standing. Cash games is just it goes around and around and around, and every hand, depending on where you're at in Vegas or elsewhere, that they take a, what's called the rake which is 10% of the pot up to uh, a certain amount. I was 
stunned uh, to find out I just played for the first time uh, in a long time uh, at a casino. They're taking $5 out now. So that's a big cut. If you're losing $5 out of every hand that you play over time, you can imagine that that adds up to real money. So you're not just playing against players, you're playing against the rake. So that makes it hard to make money uh, long term. Uh, to get back to the, the question at hand, you know, how long or how many hours does it take, you know, to, uh, I, don't, I don't remember the exact wording, to get good or to, to be decent? Let me retool the question a little bit. Could you play poker as a nine to five job? Like, could you dedicate 40 hours a week, a regular work week, to playing poker and make a living at it? I was really wondering, like, how many hours would it take to play it comfortably? But why don't we use uh, the 40 hours a week as a baseline? So if you're doing really well, you can play, you can afford to play less than that. But if you're not doing well, then you ultimately have to play more than that to really make a living at it. My question is, like, how many hours a week do you think you have to play to make a living at it? Yeah, it, it really depends on your bankroll and your bankroll management. So first, you've got to get a bankroll, you've got to have a baseline of money that you have access to for poker playing. If you just have a hundred dollars and you're looking to make a living from poker, you're not going to make it very far. Uh, so I don't know what that number should be. Imagine somewhere in the five figures. Uh, I, I could see having a bankroll of $50,000. Uh, you could, you, you would have enough wiggle room to if you have a bad stint and you're running cold um you could lose half of that and you would still be able to play at particular stakes uh for a while for example if you were playing 510 and that's typically a thousand dollar buy-in 510 meaning the size of the blinds not to get too deep into the weeds but that, that's literally what they would call it 510 uh so if you're buying in for a thousand dollars um you could you know, make some decent money. Um, like if you're just in a hand with one other person and all your money goes in, um, then you could, you, you know, a $2,000 pot, so you're winning the $1,000 if you win the hand, of course. You know, $1,000 is not not too shabby, uh, even <laughs> even for uh, even for a week's worth, you know, you could, you could, you could live on, uh, you know, in most places anyway, $1,000 a week of, of income. So fundamental to your question is what's your bankroll so you, you got to have uh, a, a cushion to start and you have to be playing high enough stakes uh to actually win enough money to make it worthwhile as a job the short answer is yes you can make a living off of 40 hours a week but it really depends on how rich you are and how good you are that's fair because, yeah, I've definitely met a few people who were like, oh, I'm totally going to, you know, play poker for a living. And I'm like, are you? Are you really? Honestly, it's a lot more feasible to make a living playing poker online uh, than in person. Online, you get through hands much faster. You can play multiple tables at the same time. I've seen people play like 30 tables at the same time, like online. And that's a low end. Some people can do more than that. But they have like a system. They go really fast. I played as many as 20 at once, and that's with only one monitor. But that was a lot of limit hold'em, where really there's not a lot to even observe. It's really just like most of the time you're folding or, you know, it's in the background. So you can, that makes it easier. You know, I used to play 10 no limit tables at once, which is a bit, uh, probably a bit much. I ended up settling on four so I could watch, I could actually watch all four games because in no limit hold'em. It's oh a lot God. more important to kind of pay attention to what's what's going on. I I want to disagree with something that that Dave said uh, about 
it's more feasible online. That's not the case at all. Online game is is a lot harder. It used to be amazing uh, in the back in the aughts uh, before the Justice Department or whoever it was kind of came down on the on the biggies like Full Tilt and Poker Stars, and so now people uh, Americans can't play on those sites anymore. So online used to be a super soft game where it was actually quite easy to to make some decent money. Uh, it's not the case anymore to to make money. Uh, unless you're just like one one in a million, like in the top, top, top tiers uh, of poker skill. To elaborate on your disagreement, though, which I do agree with, it's but you're you're coming at it more from a U.S. centric point of view because online gambling is still legal in several other countries. That that's true, Dave. But it was the soft Americans. Seriously, like this is just like the way it is. It was the Amer. It was the fish, the fishy Americans. Uh, who made the game online awesome for everyone, and they're gone, and it sucks now. Like I, I will say, it made my made me become a much better poker player. I couldn't just you know do my thing and just you know sit like a rock and not, never bluff. Essentially, I was just there. I used to do what was called bonus whoring. There was literally a, a website called bonushores.com, whatever it was, uh, the website, and you it would just list all the deals where you could deposit somewhere and just hang out basically wait for monster hands and then you know just crank through a bunch of hands and you guaranteed make money because you were making money just by depositing and playing x number of hands it was kind of awesome getting back to american players once once americans stopped playing on mass in 2010 it got a lot harder and what I was doing wasn't working anymore. And so I had to actually, you know, do what poker players do, which is just mix it up a lot more, bluff more. Like I didn't used to bluff at all, like back in the day, like when I was really playing um, a lot in the aughts. So long story short, online game much harder. If you're going to if you're going to do this as a way of life, you have to play in person. There's, and, unless you are just a phenomenal player. I, I actually considered strongly, in fact, doing this, and uh, I'm very glad that it, it didn't end up going that way because I don't th- I don't think it would have been uh, the best wow. uh, decision for me <laughs> health wise in multiple ways. I was very strongly considering moving to Reno to try to make a go out of playing poker professionally. Uh, so I played. There's a card club in Emeryville called the Oaks that I've played at a lot over the years, and um, I've been going to Reno a lot to play. And I, it's not like I've, I haven't made a ton of money, but I I am definitely a profitable player. Uh, but again, just because you're profitable doesn't mean you can exist on it as a career or as a job. You know, I, at no point was I did I ever make enough money to really subsist on poker winnings. My best year was something like I profited twenty thousand dollars, and that was one year, and that's pretty solidly like my best year by by a good amount. So, and I was eat sleep drinking whatever they're saying is poker like pretty hardcore playing tons of poker especially online at that point back when the game was easier well that really lends credence to a lifestyle game like you have to dedicate your life to playing it I, yeah it's at that point become way more than just a hobby it's a profession at that point so yeah i mean i've done this enough you know long, you know 10 hour 12 hour or more stents playing poker that i would really strongly encourage people who are interested in doing it to to think heavily uh, about uh, whether it's something they really want to do um a friend once told me and i, I this will never leave me he, you know he said you know this is 
what it's, I would, and someone who was better than me, you know, you know, who had done it, mm. who played probably as much as me, who said, yeah, you know, I was making money in, in Vegas, and well, and he just kind of he made the analogy of well, you could walk around. Imagine you're just walking around the, the desert, just picking up dollars. That's how exciting it would be uh, if you were doing this, you know, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. You're just, yeah, you can make money. You you can do this, but you know, at at some point, it's just going to become a grind and and not fun, uh, even if you aren't having bad spells. I mean, everyone's going to have bad spells, right? It's just math. Like you're gonna, right? His point being that even if you're making money, it's going to be a grind and not fun at, at some point. Like, so you have to have a just a particular temperament and you have to have other interests too, you know, if you're going to make a go of it for poker. Uh, I suppose you could say this for anything, just to expand it back to the, the topic. Yeah, of lifestyle gaming. Like, man, do you really have to want it? Just being good enough to make money isn't even enough, right? You have to have the, the disposition to be able to, you know, do it and then, you know, put it out of your mind and do other things and be productive in other ways. It's not just because you're good. It's not enough. All right. Did you get that, boys and girls at home? Stay in school, study hard, work hard, get a real job. Mm, I, I, sure. <laughs> Before we move on from poker, I'm going to go ahead and ask one last thing. And that is, of course, the addition of AI to poker. So everybody who's into poker probably already knows this. Now that AIs are so popular in every game, of course, it also has a hand in poker. Apparently, they have an AI that plays heads-up poker pretty optimally. And a lot of poker players, from what I've seen, seem to feel like this has, quote-unquote, removed the soul of poker. So what that really means is... A poker AI has basically figured out what the optimum play is mm -hmm. in regards to how often and what percentages you should be bluffing, calling, betting, whatever it is. Just every move in poker. And the players that generally do the best are the players who emulate the AI. So, like, any given hand, there's a... You could probably look up a chart for what you should be doing. And the chart will basically tell you 30% of the time you should be bluffing with his hand. Uh, you know, 20% of the time you should be um, calling with his hand. 40% of the time you should be raising with his hand. And then the players that sort of most similarly mimic the AI's behavior ultimately do the best. And this has sort of removed some of the romance of the game because it's so mathematical and so clinical. And, you know, the, the old days of, you know, reading tells and being a, uh, a feel player has taken a weird backseat or at least fallen by the wayside to some extent. And uh, the people who are super into it kind of just emulate the machine, get the best results, get the best expected value. Do you guys have... Any feelings? Do you agree with that assessment or disagree with that assessment? Or uh, what do you think? What do you guys think? Um, I'd say it's pretty accurate. At, at the same time, I also want to say that you could go to any casino and sit down and you're playing with people who have no idea about solvers. Your average, you know, lower stakes game, one, two or two, five, you're not going to sit down with anybody who knows anything about solvers at all. So it's not like, I wouldn't say that solvers ruin the game, but you know, any 
poker pros making six figures or seven figures is knows exactly what's going on in terms of how much solvers have influenced the game. Because you don't know, a solver is a statistical analysis program that analyzes play based on percentages and then gives you the breakdown of how often you should be doing a given thing. Is that right? Yeah, and kind of the the poker player who talks about solvers intelligently and with a lot of knowledge is Doug Polk. He is the best by far. Heads up, meaning just uh, one-on-one, no limit poker player, no, no limit Hold'em poker player in the world. And so if anybody is interested in, you know, kind of learning more about heads up and solvers and that sort of thing, uh, look up Doug Polk's uh, YouTube videos because he's a very interesting guy. I can't follow half of what he's talking about sometimes. So. Well, he does a nice combo of getting deep in the weeds, but he also makes his stuff pretty accessible as well. But anyway, what you said, Paul, is, is pretty accurate. Solvers are a thing. I think I read a story once where somebody had a big decision in a tournament um, and they didn't know what to do because their recollection or their their knowledge was suggesting that the solver would say that they were 50-50 on either folding or going all in. And he literally flipped a coin, you know, I think under the table or just he flipped a coin to help him just make the final decision because it was literally a coin flip. The solver would say it was a coin flip. So these sophisticated players who know about solvers literally trying to, in some cases, even recall what the solver would say to do in a particular situation. So taking away the soul of it it, it is kind of accurate at a certain level, but not at the kind of base level of Joe Schmoe's, you know, sitting down at a a casino just to play poker. I mean, I don't think it removes the soul at all, honestly. I think it's just a prominent mathematical method you can use, but, like, you can still bluff, you can still call someone out, you can still get the feel and tells, or just, like, kind of get the feeling to know when to go in even if the solver doesn't recommend it yeah i think overall it just helps like the overall people just be more solid overall so it's a lot harder to just bs your way uh, like through a tournament and in a weird way it's not quite a new thing it's new that it's so prominent and so accurate but these there there was an old method i i knew of when you weren't sure what to do like in a situation you're like 30 percent of the time i should raise 70 percent of the time i should call or fold let's just say 30 percent raise and 70 percent fold um just to make it easier a nice percentage uh random number generator you could use easily was just uh your wristwatch so you just look at your wristwatch and see where the second hand is and if it's in the 30 percent then you raise and if it's not then you fold and it was such a fun method or interesting method because even if your opponent knew exactly what you were doing they still couldn't get like a solid read on you from it they just knew you looked you did a percentage and you acted accordingly to what that percentage was but they don't know which way or what percentages the percentages are so in that regard i think when that guy flipped the coin he probably just did it above the table and just the opponents would look at him and be like i don't know what the hell that was his decision was folder all in. I mean, those are two the two uh, extremes of decisions, right? There's not like there's a lot to predict after that. Yeah, but imagine someone flipping a coin. You know it's folder all in. They flip the coin, they look, and then they go all in. You're like, well, does that mean that he's bluffing me percentage wise, or does that mean he's better than me and he's this is fifty percent of the time I'm gonna call? I don't know what to do. I I would agree with with Dave that the game is still the game. 
you know, uh, it's still you against the other players. And my enjoyment for the game hasn't diminished because solvers are a thing now. But and I want to to agree with something else Dave said, which is that it's not like this is entirely new. There, the the bots are better. Um, but bots have been around since, you know, the early aughts, or I don't even know when they started, but they've, they've been around for a long time. They're just very good now. Um, in other words, I think it was, what, 2015 or so, where I, I, the first computer or bot literally solved Limit Hold'em, which is a much kind of easier game, a much easier algorithm to come up with. And then now we're at the point where no limit is, you know, quote unquote, solved. But the game is still the game. If you go to a casino, it's not like you're you're literally playing against a bunch of computers. You're still playing against people who are drunk and make errors, <laughs> and you know you can observe tells. You know, it, 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 the game's still the game. It's just you know now there's these accurate tools that people have accessible to them, but it's really only gonna for Joe Schmoes. It's really only gonna affect online games. You know, they should be aware that this is a thing that exists. But other than that, it's really the the top pros that are influenced by solvers and bots. It's not it's not something that your average player is really going to have to concern themselves too much with. Oh, machines ruin everything. That's it. It's true. We knew it from the beginning of time. Automation replaces human decision making and it's ruined everything. Well, I mean, on another side note, I just think the soul of soul of poker argument is just BS. I think it's just something people say when they can't explain things. They just feel like, oh, or they just don't aren't having fun with the game, even though the game is all mathematical and nothing nothing about that changed. Um, maybe it's the way some of the people played is, is is different, but like the soul of the game or whatever the hell you're making up to quantify your fun with the game, it's it's not a thing. Obviously, soul of the game is a dramatic way of saying, <laughs> like, how, I guess, how fun and romantic the game is. Okay, it's clearly a metaphor for something else, but, <laughs> like, it's not to be taken literally in some degree. I feel like the, the soul of the game is, is how much money you, you win. If you're winning money, then the soul is there. But if it's too hard to win money, then the soul is just gone. Yeah, I'm still a fan of the home game. All right, let's move on. So... To bring it back to uh, something more related to the board gaming hobby, how about Magic the Gathering? So clearly has a very large tournament scene. It has a very large following as far as tournament coverage. I believe a lot of it's covered on Twitch. Definitely a pro scene slash pro culture. And it also has a like really in-depth, complete lifestyle that goes with the game. The people who are into Magic the Gathering are really into Magic the Gathering. Well, that's because they don't have money for anything else. <laughs> and Magic keeps taking their money. <laughs> it's a big enough money sink that it just sort of like consumes <laughs> all your disposable income as, as well. I imagine it's weird because there's a lot of elements to it, right? Like For some people, they just like the collection aspect of it, right? They don't even necessarily play it. They just like to collect stuff. But for the people who do play it, again, there's a lot of levels you can go to. There's both like the sort of official sanctioned formats or like the ways of playing Magic that are part of the professional scene. But then there are people who go, as you say, they really enjoy Magic, but they enjoy different parts of it or different ways to play. It's definitely weird. <laughs> magic is a weird little ecosystem. The ecosystem is actually very important, especially for myself. I don't even play Magic or I don't play it anymore. I'll occasionally enter a draft tournament perhaps, but sponsored which means that someone pays for my entry but i give them all my cards 
and I have to draft rares if I see them. That's a whole. That's a whole side. That's a whole side topic. So they front you your your buy-in money, your stake for the tournament fee, whatever it is. Yeah. You draft and play, and you must draft rares. If I see them, yeah. You do as well as you do in in the tournament, and whatever cards you win, go back to the guy who fronted your your buy-in. Yeah, and also usually if you do well, you get a prize, and I'll give that to the guy as well. But also, all the cards you draft, you get to keep at the end. Like, whatever deck you made, you get to keep all the cards. That's why I have to draft the rares. And so, yeah, yeah, so it's a way for me to play and not have to... Because if I played normally, then I just have all these magic cards left over that I don't want. I could just give them away, but it's way better if someone pays me for them. I'm having to... So, me personally, I have a hard time saying anything negative about magic, even though right. I have a lot to say that, could, that negative about it. Because, in a nutshell, at least in America... Magic is credited for saving or keeping the board gaming hobby alive. That's true. Or more specifically, most board game stores are around because of Magic. Yeah, it's like I hear it's like like a third to half of their of the product is due to Magic. Potentially more, depending on on what stores, even. Sure. I mean, some there are some places that would have been okay. You know, that like the community is good for that. And I'm just talking about in general. But yeah, a lot of a lot of stores. Any like mom and pop, especially uh, board game selling stores, uh, also sell magic because it keeps them alive. Like it's it's that important. David uh, happens to work at a board gaming cafe. If you had to take a guess, what percentage of revenue do you think is dedicated to magic? Uh, product only. Oh, it's tough to say because I don't actually know the margins. I hear they're actually not great. The amount the store gets for each card sold. So I, I guess like 20-25%. That does include some of this, but it's really hard to, to guess that. It might be higher if you include tournament fees and other stuff. I guess I do have to include that. So it probably goes up to like at least 30%. Well, it also, you know, it gets people in the store. It gets people interested in coming other days as well. And it makes the store look like busier when it's just magic players. Well, then if it's doing what it used to do of, like, you get a free drink, then it's, there's some minuses there. Right. Like, I can see the report at the end on what was sold, and it, it also fluctuates a lot. Um, there's some days where tons of magic is sold, especially on pre-release days. There are bigger tournaments. There's there's weeklies, and then there's, like, bigly, like, monthlies and set releases and stuff like that. And so the, it fluctuates a lot, so it makes it even harder to judge. But I can kind of see the thing, and I don't know how much profit... I can see the sales, but I don't know how much profit that is because I don't actually know the the cost of wholesale magic cards. Oh well, it's it's fine. It's not about profit. I I just asked about revenue. How much of the revenue does it generate? Oh okay. Well, I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go about like twenty twenty five percent. Even though even though like um, there's a lot of other stuff to the cafe, the magic is still a really big part of it, and it's very prominent. When you enter, you can see all the magic cards right behind the register. It's just a big old shelf of cards. And we have the events. There's magic on five of the seven days now. Five of seven? Yeah, five of seven. Whoa, jeez. Five of the seven days. It's a little harder to compare because, like, if it's a cafe, there's, like, the food and drink aspect to it, too. Whereas, like, most other stores won't have that. Yeah. Or it'll be just, like, small, very small snacky stuff. Since we didn't cover it, the main way this happens, in case you're not familiar with Magic, is that the game is um, sets of cards, and each set has its own number of cards, just a whole bunch. And you take these cards, you build the deck, you you know, and you compete. But um, in the standard format, which is the main format, only the last 
four sets are applicable. They're only the last four sets are eligible to be used. So every quarter year or so, they introduce a new set. So that means the set that was introduced about a year ago is now gone and cannot be used for standard anymore. And so in this way, the cards keep cycling and the game keeps staying fresh in terms of like the meta or what decks are popular or good. I mean, again, not surprising because, again, a lot of different ways to play. It is a big, thriving community, generally speaking, if you can find it. Right. If you're, if you're collecting, you have to collect a whole new set every quarter year. And if you're a player, you have to, you know, upscale your cards every quarter year or so. Upscale may not have been the right word, but whatever. I mean, it sounds like the community's been established, which is why I can support that. But I'm sure, like, Magic players right now are laughing because that's not the case anymore. I just use that as a general example of how it used to be. Nowadays, they're doing like a new set every month or month and a half. Really? The release like schedule is up to every month? More or less, yeah. Not every month, but pretty close. Yeah, it's really ridiculous, and a lot of the community is complaining about it because it's just too much. It's too much to collect. It's too much. It's too much to keep up with. It's just too much. It's 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 just basically a big money grab to just keep going faster, and thus also requiring people to consistently invest and buy a new new card. It's it's really bad. They've kind of messed with it a little too much, and they started pushing out a little too much, and the community started to get pissed. They could just they could just stop playing, right? They could just stop playing. They could just get that choke. Yeah, they could just stop playing. It's true. <laughs> well, that's what's going to happen if they're not careful. I, I have a question. I have not. I know next to nothing about magic, but how? And I'm sure it varies a lot. But how much money, on average ish, you know, just throw out a number? Would somebody? spend on one of these releases Ooh, that's a good question it really depends if you're a collector you'd spend a lot more obviously so the other big thing with magic is that there's a large secondary market yeah you could just buy the cards and not the boosters if you're like penny pinching so it's like if you want to make a sort of like competitive tournament viable deck my i suspect depending on stuff three hundred dollars yeah but that's if that's if you're starting from scratch yeah also, assuming you know what you're doing. Probably. I mean, my, my numbers are a bit off, too. It's probably more up-to-date. That's the penny-pinching number. Well, it varies It varies by set and what set you're in. Some decks are more expensive than others. Essentially, the rarer the cards are used in the deck, the more expensive it's going to be, obviously. And purposely, the rarer cards are generally more powerful, but not always. And so... But that's part of the appeal of the game. You're supposed to buy these booster packs, which have a random assortment of cards in them. And then, even if the you, even if it's stuff you don't want, it should be stuff someone else wants, maybe for their deck, and then you trade back and forth for the stuff you want. That was the old premise before it got big. <laughs> yeah, no, that's still the premise, honestly. Sure. But yeah, now but now people do more trading through the secondary market than like in person with each other. As far as I've seen, I don't know. Other scenes may be different, but in that regard, you can possibly spend a little less if you have a. If it's, especially if you have a friend group where you're just kind of sharing the cards, then you can kind of split the cost between people in the group. Hopefully, people don't want the same cards, at least the rare ones. Have you seen an increase in the, the price per pack? No. No, not really. Has that really remained stable? Pretty much, yeah. It's about five bucks per pack. Oh, it's, it's like four, four. It changes, though. Like, it does change by set. So... The standard price is $4 a pack for the draft boosters, $5 a pack for the set boosters. And if you're in a draft tournament, that's what the draft boosters are generally for. Most of the time, people will buy the set boosters. The dollar more is, is worth it. 
in this context. But then there are other sets that are like special sets where the packs would be like ten to twenty dollars. Um, there are some where the packs are nine dollars. It really depends on the set. Or sorry, the draft is nine and the set is like twelve, thirteen. It depends on the set, but most normal releases are four to five dollars per pack. In. So, so what's the so the penny pinching amount is three hundred dollars ish. So what would a someone who is living the magic the gathering lifestyle spend on a uh, on a release? Just throw a number out there. Like a thousand? No, no, no. They probably or maybe, but they probably buy a box. A box is like two hundred. Oh really? I thought it was more like three boxes. It's it's tough to say because oftentimes people will buy like three boxes, but it's not just for them. You know, they've pooled money from their friends, you know. This is what I heard from a collector collector. Like, you buy three boxes. Basically, one to keep and leave sealed, and you don't do anything with it. You just hold it as a sealed box. Two, one to actually open, you play draft, you use it to draft, have fun with your friends, and blah, 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 and, you know, collect the cards, whatever it is. And then you have, like, a spare one to, if you really like the set, and maybe trade with other people and do other stuff like that like so you you have one just to like stow away one to actually like for yourself to enjoy like play and use and whatever and another to just like you open it up to supplement those two things and uh trade with other collectors like that's like their lifestyle and how much they are they regularly spend per set yeah that could be i don't i don't know (laughs) Yeah, I heard that. It just sounds so extreme. I was like, what? Isn't like a box like $200? So you're spending like $600 right off the bat to do that? That sounds crazy. Sounds like a lot to me. But if you hold one, right, presumably they're like potentially resell later. Right? That's the one they're not doing anything with. But that's such a, I don't know, that's such a large investment, I guess. I mean, $600 is, yeah, but that's that's the thing. So it's like $600 per set. So back when sets were more reasonable, quarter of a year or even less than that, that's like 2400 a year. And of course, you're going to like resell some of it and get, make some of that money back. So that's not like the most ridiculous amount for a hobby, I would say. Oh, I would agree with that once we get to uh, another game later. <clears throat> Pokemon Go. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in that. Uh, I was in that realm for a little while. Well, you just bought a ton of board games. And <laughs> you're, you're a little, your warehouse is probably more than like. Whatever I just said. <laughs> oh yeah, if you're talking about my uh, Mulan and I have a collection of about 500 games, and so yeah, that's somewhere in the five figures of uh, investment. Yeah, board games. Yeah, it's gotta be. Yeah, but that's over like decades, right? So yeah, that that's over. Uh, I don't know what 15 to 20 years. But even so, like um, 2400 isn't that ridiculous for a hobby for someone who's working constantly i agree but if you change that to every month or every other month now we're getting like double that yeah that's why people are a little upset and on top of that they've introduced like collector boosters which are super expensive booster packs they cost like 20 bucks actually maybe it's a little less because there's like a normal box will have like 40 boosters or something a um the collector will only have like 12 or 16 i'm trying to remember but that's still like that's still like 300 dollars. and all the cards are foil and fancy and stuff and like 
you don't need them to play the game, but if you're a collector, they're like, hey, spend more money on this collector. And they do. So, I think key to the success of Magic the Gathering is somehow they've tapped into a demographic that has a lot of disposable income. So, like, from what I remember from, like, school, like, it was always those of us who were the geeky kids that played a lot of Magic and spent way too much money as children. But then we all grew up, got jobs, and then we spend way more money on Magic growing up. And, like, it just gets to a point where you have to make yourself stop. (laughs) Unless you're one of the, I don't know, super rich kids who uh, work a lot, make a lot of money, and then throw a lot of money at, at the hobby. It's just amazing how Magic has tapped into that demographic that, you know, has a lot of disposable income. In. All right, so that was Magic the Gathering. Any final thoughts on Magic the Gathering? I love Magic the Gathering. Everything is done for the uh, the poor gaming hobby. Thank you, Magic. May, may, you never, may you never die. All right, moving on. What do we head towards? Pokemon Go, or Pokemon as a lifestyle game as well. For those of you who don't know, Pokemon Go is an app game. Let's call it a set collection game. You go around catching these Pokemon, and everybody who I've seen that treat this as a lifestyle game are very obsessive about collecting the entire set. And of course, like any other game, they keep pouring out more sets and more sets and more sets and lets you collect up to, I believe the limit now is around... 6,000? So you could you can store up to 6,000 and in a lot of ways this is kind of the the perfect collection game because it's all digital. It doesn't take up any space. You, you know, catch these things virtually and then you collect them and it's great. It never takes up too much closet space or anything like that. Niantic, the company that's responsible for this game, generated around 3 billion dollars last year. I guess they have a few games, but I think by far Pokemon Go is their most popular one and, you know, a the lion's share of that $3 billion. So clearly this is a worldwide global phenomenon where, like, it has hundreds of millions of players and they have, uh, what was it, the Safari events. Now these are events in real life at actual cities around the world where you can go travel there, vacation, do your thing, and then play Pokemon Go and specifically collect uh, a limited edition, I guess we'll call them, Pokemon from that region, and there's several events. It goes on and on. And the funny thing is, I definitely play... I don't play as much as I used to, but it's just um, amazing how, how much... It, how much is in this game amanda plays too and it's definitely one of the activities we kind of do together yeah it's it's pretty fun i was a a big time pokemon go player from late 2016 started around july 4th something like that 2016 and obviously continues to go on until now so i was a big time player from 2016 till uh 2020 uh, around the start of the pandemic, I just I just burned out, as I was saying. Catching all the Pokemon is great, but there's another aspect of this game that really got me going, borderline addicted, is the the raids, uh, because there's the social component to it, and that's what really got me into it. I've I've actually made several 
uh, friends, including one very close friend just from Pokemon Go. And so the idea of the raid is that you would go to a particular location and you would all battle this uber Pokemon uh, together to take it down. And then you would get a chance to catch it. Thematically, it doesn't make a ton of sense, but whatever. Uh, you would defeat the Pokemon and then you would get a chance to catch it. And each person would be able to add it to their individual collections if they could catch it with a limited number of Pokeballs or whatever they call the they're a special kind of pokeball which has its own name i can't remember what they're called but uh so yeah with there there's a store of course within the app which you could spend pokey coins but of course in order to get those the the main the primary way the easiest way to get them of course is to spend actual money you there is a way to get coins you know, without spending money involving i i'm so out of the loop i'm, I'm sure it still involves the gems but the the method of uh, of of getting the coins has changed uh, at least a couple times, I think. But anyway, in, in order to really get a lot of coins and, all, and all, to be able to, you know, buy supplies and raid passes and all sorts of other things, you know, it's, it's the easiest thing to do is just to spend actual money, uh, of which I was doing a good amount, kind of in the levels of what Dave was talking about for magic. I don't know that I ever spent $2,000 in a year, but I, I think there was one or two years where I spent over 1000 I can confidently say. I know for sure most people don't spend that much money, but the raid passes were kind of the, the expensive thing. Uh, just speaking for myself, on the, co the collecting part is super fun, but it's easy to get burned out on that, uh, I found. And I found the most enjoyable part to be the social part, which really came into being once raids came to be a thing maybe what was it a year after because once i started meeting people like I, I, that's just fun you know like that that's why you're not just on your in, in your own little world on your phone you actually can interact with other people and i found that to be a lot of fun uh yeah that that's been my experience so i actually don't play pokemon go i try not to play games on my phone for the most part um so i think one, one thing i was curious about is like um do you find yourself, for those who do play, do you find yourself going about your day and then suddenly deciding to open up Pokemon Go and start playing then? Or do you like go to a specific spot, open up Pokemon Go, catch the Pokemon, you know, for the limited time events, whatever else, and then go on your way? Like what do you find the balances there? I think a lot of people will just have their app on. Like the people who play hardcore, they'll have there used to be, I guess there still is, I don't know if you can still buy them, a Pokemon Go Plus. Uh, and also there's something called a gotcha where basically it would auto catch for you, which may sound completely silly to people who are like, well, what the hell's the point of playing the game then? But it's just uh, an efficient way to catch Pokemon. And so you could literally be playing all the time, having the app open with your, your device of choice going to auto catch these Pokemon. And then of course you're more active participant when you're meeting up with people to take down a particular Mon uh, at a gym, for example. So I kind of liked it because it was like I was, quote, being productive uh, while I was driving somewhere <laughs> playing Pokemon. Now, of course, they have mechanisms within the game where the auto-catching won't work if you're going above certain speeds. So I remember playing uh, on my honeymoon, uh, and Mulan also plays uh, Pokemon Go, or, or she did a lot. Uh, she better if you're playing on your honeymoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right? No, no, but like it was just the thing where we'd have our auto catchers going and it, it, we were on the bus in Hong Kong and it was the perfect speed. So we were just like hanging out, like, oh, glad that our phone, and then we're just taking it in the sights. 
and the the speed of the bus was such that we were just we were just cooking you know all the time amazing so, yeah it was <laughs> we were having a blast you know so whatever whatever floats your boat people out there pokemon go there's no shade playing on your honeymoon uh but so i think to answer your question it, you know it probably just you know it depends on the person but there are mechanisms like the auto catchers uh which will allow you to play uh whenever easily you know you don't even have to be paying particular attention to what's going on uh you do have to have the space though which was why i ended up stopping playing sorry getting a little off topic of where we were at but it is perhaps something that might be worth uh, talking about is what makes people stop doing these lifestyle games okay and and for me with pokemon go the issue was the maintenance. I just, it was just boring as heck. The, you know, you only can have a certain number. And I maxed out on my bag space for both items and monsters. So it wasn't that I wasn't paying, putting money into that kind of stuff. You're just catching so many things. And then you have to like, oh, determine your, your best Pokemon based on their stats. Okay. And so uh, 15 is the highest of the three stats. There's attack, defense, and stamina, is it? See, I'm so out of the loop. I don't even know anymore. HP. Hit points. Uh, HP. Okay, so you're gonna have 15, 15, 15, which translates into 100%. So when you're trying to, you get to the point where you have so many Pokemon, you're like, which 98 do I keep? The 15 attack or the 15? You know, it's just all of this stuff. And, and attack is considered to be the most important stat. But regardless, you can imagine having storage of you're filled out on Pokemon, and you have to decide what to delete. And you can imagine there being decision fatigue when you're having to do this all the time and so that's ultimately what uh ended my interest in the game is just i couldn't do it anymore i got so bored with the de the decision fatigue of of having to make room for new pokemon and it just it just took away the joy from the game so but back to the the question at hand in terms of philosophically how do people play the game and i think there's a variance but you know you can do the auto catchers have it in the background or you know everyone's actively going to be playing if they're actually going to be um, going to a gym to take down a Pokemon. And there's various events too. Community days, they last well, they used to last three hours and then they kind of expanded it. Whatever, it's just a, you know, everyone can meet up at their spot of choice. I used to go to UC Berkeley a lot because there were lots of kind of hot spots for Pokemon where they would spawn as you're walking around. I guess different strokes for different folks, but you know, I think a lot of Hardcore players are when they're when they're playing, they're playing and they're actively playing for you know hours on end in a particular day. Yeah, it's it gets pretty crazy. Like I've met a lot of people playing Pokemon, and the level of obsession and the level of how you can hack the game is so extreme that I was just amazed. I just could, I couldn't believe how like seriously some people play it, and they're even like. Just gamers, man. That's that's what we're gonna do. Yeah, that's true. Like, uh, uh, there are definitely a lot of YouTube uh, channels sort of dedicated to it too, and they'll kind of uh, pay for everything, do everything you can, and then film it, and then uh, put it up as a video and as content, and then people consume it, and they uh, get ad revenue as any YouTuber would, and it's just completely dedicated to just this game. I think two of the things this game really does really, like, brilliantly is that it gets you out in the real world. Like, gets you out of the house, do it, and people, like, um, I, I know a lot of people who like to sort of have dinner, go out for a walk, and kind of walk around, and they'll play the game, and it's a very sort of uh, 
healthy after meal walk kind of uh, deal and it's just their ritual and that's how they play the game and you know and that's really kind of using it to supplement some very healthy activity which you know is 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 wonderful thing and then there's some people who just go crazy where they are (laughs) okay i'll give you an example there's one guy when you're catching stuff you let's say you want to catch as many uh, pokemon as you can all in a very limited time frame so what you can do is the guy teaches you a trick to skip the animation screen of the ball hitting the pokemon and catching it so that you could save those few seconds and those few seconds add up when you're talking about catching like a hundred Pokemon, because you maybe save like two, three, four seconds, and then if it's a hundred Pokemon, you're saving four hundred seconds, and that's like what more than five minutes. It's just crazy. It's it's just so wild how like precise and uh, hardcore people get. And um, I was definitely one of them for a while. Uh, I play here and there. I don't play as much as I used to, but at the height, at the height of my interest. There's there's a lot of things the game does to incentivize you to check in on the game every few hours. So one of the things is they installed a buddy. So in in order to play with your buddy, you kind of, you have to feed it, and like any other like I don't know pet or edible, you have to feed it uh, periodically to optimize your leveling of it. It's basically you would have to feed it every three hours. So at the height. One of the things I would do is I would wake up, go to the bathroom, come back to bed, uh, play with my buddy, and then go back to sleep. (laughs) And it's just like, and then after that, at some point, I would get up and go about the regular day, but I'd always check in on my buddy and keep playing with it as as you go, and you can play with it throughout the day. And it's really funny how um, crazy it was. And, you know, you can just play it for hours. And it makes visiting a new place more fun, which is also a kind of weirdly fun element to the game. Because when you go to new places, there are um, Pokestops everywhere, and you spin them to get items. But if you if, if it's your very first time spinning the stop, you get a it records how many different stops you've been to, and that's like a particular stat. And then it records how many total spins you have at the like the span of the game, and that's like another stat. So it kind of has this weird supplementary element to, to like real life that kind of makes the game uh, fun, which is also kind of weirdly enjoyable. And it's hard to describe if you're not super into it, but yeah, I think I... I hit a point very similar to Brad's where it's like, I'm really dedicating a lot of time to this and this is getting a little repetitive and a little monotonous. So I definitely kind of dialed back my play too. And it's, but still fun, enjoyable once in a while. You were talking about the stop. So the gems, when you spend a new gem, you get kind of the beginner's badge, if you will, you get this low level badge and then you can increase your points through various means uh, at your gym to work your way up to, do they have like a platinum badge now? What? Long story short, you, it keeps track of every gym you've been to. I guess at least up to a thousand or five hundred or something. I think there, there's an actual hard limit. But there's a map too that you can you can kind of see a world map um, where you can see where all you've been around the world, which is kind of fun, especially if you're taking trips elsewhere around the world. And you can kind of just a little reminder where you've been, which is kind of it's kind of cute, it's kind of neat. In four years, I kind of got out of it everything that i wanted to get out of it which as it turned out 
coupled with uh, board games ended up being uh, how um, I I met my wife Mulan through board games, and we ended up dating because of Pokemon Go. Isn't that sweet? Um, and uh, yeah, no kidding. I posted on a Facebook. I posted on a Facebook group. A Bay Area Pokemon Facebook group saying I was going to Pier 39 in San Francisco. I think it was for a Halloween event. And, um, you know, long story short, we ended up meeting up. And that was kind of the beginning of uh, when we, we started going out. So thanks, Pokemon Go. But in addition to that, just like once the raid started, me, you know, meeting people and making friends, like that was awesome. And I was still enjoying the game. But then, like I said, with kind of the maintenance of it, I just I just burn out. And then it was the pandemic and it was just so like people weren't gathering anymore for these raids, which was my favorite part of the game. Uh, so that really just between that and the maintenance of it, that really took me out of it. But I am that said, I'm very glad that the game is still uh, going strong. You'd mentioned the Safari events, Paul. I never went to a Safari event, but I went to Pokemon Go Fest one year in Chicago, I had a really good time. You know, I, I, I went by myself. I saw some familiar faces from uh, the East Bay uh, there, but for the most part, it was just uh, me wandering in this big space that was designated for, for the Pokemon Go event and um, catching Pokemon and, you know, met a few people here and there, but, um, you know, it was fun, a, a little, you know, surreal, I guess, just <laughs> however many people hundreds or thousands of people walking around in this designated area uh, catching pokemon but they did a good job they had they made it up kind of like different designated areas had different i don't know you call them biomes or whatever the the terms are uh which would have pokemon specific to that kind of biome um and you know there was places to buy t-shirts and all that kind of stuff so i think they do a good job based on my one event that i went to they did a good job with their their live events do you guys have your own uh, lifestyle games, uh, David, Andrew? I used to be in the magic sphere when I was younger. Now, not so much. I play a re- decent variety of games. It's like gaming is a big part of my life. I, I don't think there's one I would consider like a lifestyle. Well, I have one. It was my key into being introduced into the local hobby shops and therefore the board game community in that regard. And that game is um, Blood Bowl. Blood Bowl is an offshoot of the Warhammer game, which is also a lifestyle game, which I I don't touch because there's a whole can of worms to open there. But yeah, it's in the it's in the Warhammer universe, and it's a fantasy kind of football league, like American football, though it's more like rugby, really. And you have all the different races from Warhammer. Each one of them has their own stats. You go out there, kick, you kick the ball off, and then you try to score touchdowns, but you also try to, like, smash each other and injure the other players, essentially, so they don't come back. What's neat about it is, just to make it kind of super quick, though, is, and what makes it a lifestyle, cause that's just a game, right? But what makes it a real lifestyle game is that, uh, A, there is a living rule book. that's what they call it, and it updates pretty frequently. So, due to input from the community, and more stuff are added, it's not like you have to keep buying expansions and other things you just keep updating through the living rule book you may have to buy expansions for like the models if you really want those but you don't need to keep buying new versions of the game and two it's much better and much more suited for a league like a a season and so what happened was i was i played this with some of my friends like occasionally and then one day I found out there was a Blood Bowl League with like, I don't know, it was like 16 
18 people in it, and so it was divided into two divisions. And so with nine people, you'd play eight games uh, each season. And the game takes like two hours um, live. You can also play online. It takes like half an hour to an hour then. But when you played in the league, well, your roster would level up. At least the ones that survived um, would level up. If they died, they didn't. They'd also they'd level up so they get more, possibly more stat points, but usually more just more abilities. Um, but also occasionally, if they don't die, they could get seriously injured, and then they would have recurring injuries or some decreases as well. And so you you can retire them too if they get too injured. So your team would be fluctuating and changing and um, acquiring more team value, as they call it. So that would there's ways to handicap different team values to keep it fair or relatively fair. It wasn't that fair. But it was it, it was at least something, you know. If the game recognized, hey, this team is way souped up compared to yours, you at least got a few bonus benefits and things. Anyway, but yeah, it's this whole process. It's a game that it takes a while. You can put a lot of effort into customizing your stats and other things and, and your characters. You, oftentimes you would name your team and name every member of the team. And... Yeah, just to get into it. You could you could either do it like thematically, like if you're a Skaven, which is what I was, you could name them all kind of like Skaven like names. Or you could just pick a category and just name them after that, like this is the the Mario team, and then you just pick all the Mario characters and just name you could do that if you wanted. Um but anyway, but yeah, with the with the length of the game, it was about two hours, the setup of the league and that you'd have stats and like divisions and win-loss records and playoffs and that kind of stuff it almost it turns it into a basically like a sports league you do with your friends and yeah it really was and like honestly the game is not the game is is very random uh people will the the diehards which are way too serious will tell you that randomness isn't that much of a factor um let's the, the skill of the coach is what matters more. And while while technically true, technically true, like a beginner is not going to beat like a professional, but at the same time, they could. Uh, it, it's 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 pretty random. When you say professional, are there people who play this as a profession? Is that a thing? No, I, I mean like tournament winning coaches. Like Okay, okay. I don't know if they still do it because of COVID and all that stuff, but... There used to be like yearly tournaments in like Germany, other places like national championships. There was like a national championship in the U.S. a couple times, and you know, people that win that are gonna win like ninety-nine percent of the time over anyone inexperienced. Uh, without getting into the details of the game, it's hard to explain exactly, but there is there is a fair amount of randomness in it. That's why it's nice to have like a league where. The randomness will kind of balance out. You know, you might lose a game or two because of randomness, but overall, your, you know, your win loss, your your overall skill will show. And it's just so much fun to build up a team and you know, give them personalities or names or whatever, paint the models and watch as your the people on your roster grow and become like superstars. And because of that, um, in the league, we all each game each week you'd have to plan with the the pe- person you're playing against and arrange a meeting place and play and you know it could be like their house or my house but a lot of the people wanted to play at a local game shop called Endgame which sadly isn't there anymore but it was my first experience at a local game shop and so I went there to play and then it's like oh look at all these games it's like oh there's a game night on whatever day it was that time and it's like oh there's all these people here and then 
yeah, it just kind of grew from there, and that's or the, yeah, that's that's how I started in the local scene for board games. Well, that's because of Blood Bowl. Because of Blood Bowl, yeah. I mean, it's very possible I would have found it regardless, but you know, I can directly say Blood Bowl was the reason I went there the first time. Do you do any painting in Blood Bowl? No, what I did was like they have you can buy the figures and stuff. I just bought other figures that were pre-painted kind of like army men but not just all green you know just I, I can't remember all the figures i do remember my favorite figure was i had this little model of stitch from disneyland and so i used that as one of my there's this beast called the rat ogre and it's this giant like rattling ogre like thing and i called it stitch and used my stitch model to pummel everyone it became actually it was it's funny Again, without getting into too many of the details, Stitch became pretty much the most feared member of the league. Switch got some abilities that made him absolutely brutal, and he was just injuring everybody left and right that got near him. <laughs> but yeah, so I didn't I didn't do the models and the painting so much. I just got some pre you know pre models, not the stand you know not the um, Games Workshop theater models and stuff that you could paint. I didn't do that, but I did have models that I sort of I customly chose out. Let's say. Final thoughts. A lifestyle game isn't really something anyone just falls into. Generally, whether it be Magic the Gathering, Poker, Pokemon Go, Chess, or even Go, a person probably has a passion that launches them into it. And hopefully, there's enough content and resources to sustain that interest for years. Having said that, Please engage with the hobby responsibly, and if possible, pick a lifestyle game that won't develop an AI that'll kick your ass. Alright, that's all for now. Let's go ahead and head to the game show. Alright, gentlemen. For the game show today, we're going to be playing a game called How Many Can You Name? The game's pretty simple. For the first round, I'm going to name a game category. Each of you will submit a bid of how many games in that category you can name. Remember, you'll only have 60 seconds, and whoever bids the highest, try to list all those games. If you hit your bid, you get points equal to your bid. If you come up short, you're going to lose points equal to your bid. And then we're going to play three more rounds after the first. Whoever has the lowest score gets to pick the next category. Uh, the first category was picked randomly as... Reiner Kinesia games. So we'll each come up with our bid separately, and then at some point, once we're all ready, we'll just say it. Oh, I guess you can all type it in so it's all at the same time. Hold on, I'm being um, confused. Where do I type it in? So there should be, when you're in my server and you're on the voice channel, uh, to the right of it should be a message general channel. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm there. Yeah. So we're going to make this quick. We're going to do this blind bidding style. So uh, remember, the number, the amount you bid will be the points you get. But if you miss, you lose those points. Uh, when everybody has their bid ready, go ahead and just let me know. Okay. Put a, I put a number in. Okay. Andrew, do you have a, your bid in? I do have a number. And then real quick, we agreed that in theory, I could just list games. And whatever I list, if some of them happen to be Rainer Knizia, then life is good. You can list games. Any that do not have Rainer Knizia as a or a designer credit, do not count. 
and then you'll have 60 seconds and then you know generally i don't think anyone's gonna take 60 whole seconds if you can't think of it within 60 seconds you're not gonna think of it <laughs> okay go ahead and enter your bids okay andrew bid three brad bid six and david bid 12. and honestly mine's an overshoot where did you guys put yours uh we put it in the general text channel okay i guess dave won it with 12. all right 60 seconds dave go ahead oh no i'm not as confident all right um so tigers and euphrates um samurai raw modern art uh amon ray uh road to el dorado uh razia um So, um, uh, Babylonia, um, oh, he's credited on Witchstone, which is part of Ingenious. Um, okay, you only have 20 seconds left. Um, God, I'm blanking now. He's done everything. Um, not Prophecy, it's, um, what is that game called? Oh, crap, I see it in my head. Five seconds. The, um... You're out of time. Oh, how many did I do? You named ten. You named ten. Ten's okay. It's it's the time, yeah. The pressure gets to you. Well, now I've thought of more. Yay. Uh, no, you did pretty good. Technically, Raw and Razzia are the same game, but that's legal. That's completely legal. Yellow and Yangtze and Tigers and Euphrates are the same game, too. As is Ingenious... Ingenious and Witchstones. Razia is all, all cards. Yeah, you did pretty good, though. Uh, but short, so you lose 12 points. Short by two. Oh. Brutal. Dang. Do you know where you're sending your direct message now? Like, the thing where everyone can see it? This one. Yes, yes. Okay, good. Okay, we're moving on to round two. Uh, I didn't expect this to happen, but Dave, you have the lowest score, so you may choose the category. I can choose the category? Yes. The person who has the lowest score gets to choose the next category. Alright. So then, presumably, help them get back up. The more obscure, the better. The better for our audience. <laughs> if you're behind, you can also go with a high bid. Like, you, you might want to pick something you can make a high bid. Bid 12 again? Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll pick a CGE games then. CG Games. It's a publisher. Uh, they make stuff like code names. Oh, just give out answers, why don't you? <laughs> In fact, could you list 12 answers real quick? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, everyone's going to be able to at least bid one. So you have 111 possible answers. Do not bid 112. That is good to know. I have a potential problem here, but we'll uh, we'll address that when I start naming games. Okay. Uh, so go ahead and you're when you're ready. Go ahead and say you're ready. Ready. Sure, I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. Please type in your bids. Brad with two. Andrew with three. Dave with thirteen. Okay. Okay. Oh my god. Oh yeah. Well, here, I I'm sure within 10 seconds we're going to have a controversy. Oh, Andrew, you see where this is going? I think I see where this is going. My prediction is that 
David is just going to list all the variant of code names to start off with. That is that is exactly right. What did we say about that? Okay, I guess that's legal. I didn't specifically say that's not legal. All right, I'll just do it. In the, I'll just do it in the last ten seconds if I'm faltering because I think I can do thirteen without it. But it's a lot easier if I have it. David, you're up for thirteen. I need a clarification. Um, just on my first guess is. I don't. I don't know if Through the Ages is CGE or not. Oh, I think. Oh, the new one is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Wait, is it? Well, whatever. I'll just guess it, and if it's not right, I'll just keep going. I'll just do fourteen. Uh, are you ready, Dave? I'm ready. And go. Okay, Through the Ages: A New Story of Civilization, Dungeon Lords, Dungeon Pets, uh, Space Alert, Galaxy Trucker, um, Code Names, Letter Jam, Underwater Cities, Shipyard. Um, Mage Knight, um, Prophecy, not Prophecy, um, Sanctum, um, crap, this happened again. 30 seconds. Okay, okay. Oh, Jesus. Oh, what else did he do? I don't want... Whatever, uh, Codenames do it, Codenames Empire, Codenames Disney. <laughs> Codenames Pictures. Okay, so that's 14. Yeah. <laughs> Just went with that. Just went with that. I guess you get 13 points, which brings your score to 1. So I think I got, even without the Codenames variants, I think I got 12. Uh, I believe you were at 11 when you stopped and then named the other Codename variants. 11? Okay. What uh, Vladia games did I miss? Vlada games? Yeah. Uh, a bunch, right? Like The notable Vlada games, not like his whole collection, but yeah. Buddy Buddy Moose Moose. Yes, I did miss that. I don't know if I can name much more than that. Okay, let's move on. So that was one bonus round, one, uh, sorry, one initial round and one player round. Brad, you're up next in turn order. Uh, you get to name the category. All right. Um, one came up I think that would be fun is game mechanics. Game mechanics. Yeah. You want to name just game mechanics as opposed to naming a specific game mechanic with certain games? I don't understand what you mean. So if you name game mechanics, that implies you're naming like worker placement. Yeah. You know, blah, 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 whatever, whatever. But if you named a specific category like worker placement, then you would be naming the games like Stone Age is a worker placement game. Oh, I see what you're saying. So are you naming game mechanics or are you naming a specific one? Uh, actually, yeah, I think we'd be, we meaning me and Andrew would be at less of a disadvantage if we went with one mechanic and listing the games. And since it's my favorite mechanic, not that we're going to be able to beat Dave, uh, we'll say worker placement. Worker placement. Okay. Round two, round, I guess three, round three, worker placement. Please place your bids. Oh God. Okay. So like in theory, there should be a lot, but. Brain is slow. Brain is slow. I'll say... To give you an average, apparently ten, naming 10 games is pretty easy. <laughs> naming anything more than 10 games gets, uh, gets exceedingly difficult. I'll give it a little stretch. All of, all of my bids so far have been stretches. <laughs> Didn't you bid three? Yes! No, I... I like... He also bid three for the first one. <laughs> well, he may not know CGE as well as you do, or... Uh, or in Kinesia. Yeah, no, same. 
Kenita, I had Tigers of Euphrates and Ra, and then that was it. And then CG, I had. Oh, then you're hoping for one more later. <laughs> right? No, yeah. I was. I wanted. To, I wanted to have a stretch goal. I wanted to make it interesting. And then in the previous one, I knew code names, and I figured I could just if I named enough stuff, I'd probably hit something else. Okay. Do you? Does everyone have a number in the in the chat? Yep. I have a number ready to type. Yeah. I have a number in the chat. Okay. One, two, three. Enter. Andrew with ten is the winner. Wow, what the heck? Okay. I kind of I underbid it a little bit just because I don't want to be the only one doing it. Yeah, that's fair. But I'm not sure I would have gone higher than ten. Okay, Andrew, are you ready? Sure. Andrew, here you go. One minute. Go. Stone Age, uh, Everdell, Ex Libris, Agricola, Caverna, Lords of Waterdeep. That's six. Now what? There should easily be more. That's the frustrating thing. There are definitely more. <laughs> There's so many more. Like, this is, this is, like, what? Um, I feel like there's probably various U Rosenberg games, but I haven't actually played those, so I don't know. 30 seconds, Andrew, 30 seconds. Um, Sagrada, no, that's drafting. Uh, Photosynth, nope, that's not it. Um... Like, it was so strong. It was such a good start. And even my sad collection of board games is not helping me at this point. This is really unfortunate. This is really unfortunate. I ran out of... I felt like there was so much more. Like, part of me wants to say Terraforming Mars, just as I mentioned Everdell, but, like, I don't think that counts. Um, but no, okay, no. Okay, I'm sorry, wow. we're out of time. <laughs> wow, there we go. Okay, so Andrew loses 10. Dave wins with 1. It wasn't a runaway! What the one? It does get decidedly harder. Yep. After like the most popular ones, I found it interesting you said Agricola and Caverna, and then didn't say the third one. I don't know the third one. Oh, it's a feast for Odin. Oh, that, that's so funny. That thought, like when I mentioned Uwe Rosenberg, that thought did come to mind, but I haven't actually played Feast for Odin. Feast for Odin is quite good. We should play sometime. It's quite good, but it is intimidating the first time you look at it. You look at it, and there's 63 available spots. So. I guess I guess with the strategy of just saying games, I should have done it. Okay, we ready for the last round? <laughs> last round. I thought there were three rounds. Yeah. Oh, I I wasn't counting the the first round because I named that category. Wait, so I have so I'm up so I'm up by thirteen then. You have one point. But the first round doesn't count. Where I lost twelve. You have a one point lead over Brad. Oh. There's one last round as this was pre-planned. Going into the last round, Dave has one whole point. Brad's in second with zero. Andrew's in third with negative ten. He's going to have some ground to make up. Okay, Andrew, go ahead. You get to name the category. Well, he's going he's gonna to bid at least eleven. It's true. But luckily, I get to pick the category now. Games games are my top ten. It's like, okay. Good ten, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> cool. Well, let's go with the other option from Brad, because I don't have ideas. Ga actual game mechanics. Well, game mechanics? Yes. All right. Does uh, everyone have a number? No, I'm thinking of the strategy here, because I don't want to doom myself. Doom yourself. I want to win with zero. That's what I was wondering here, because that's another thing. I also want Brad to go. Oh, that's a good point. I'm a little nervous about it. I'd have to stretch my brain. Ugh. You had three rounds to prepare for this. 
So, yeah, this is interesting. Like, I would it would be fun to have Brad go. I I wonder how I would do. So I'm gonna put a number that uh, will make me work hard, but may- maybe won't be a stretch. Just tell me, is it more than the last one you bid? I'm not saying anything. <laughs> right. I want to just retroactively lower my bid after I see the bids. I think I have a power. I think I have a power card that lets me do that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I have a number ready. Yep. Me too. Go ahead and enter your bids. Brad bids 7, Andrew bids 5, and David bids 10. Okay, David, you're up with your bid of 10. Okay. Boy, this is a category I haven't really thought about. Are you ready? Okay. Go ahead. Alright, so worker placement, um, set collection, hand management, uh, drafting, um, dice, dice rolling or dice manipulation. Um, yeah, it counts as one. Fine, count it as one then. <laughs> um, roll, roll and move, pick up and deliver. Um, cooperative. <laughs> okay, because that technically counts. It's listed in Gate Geek. Yeah, that's a mechanic. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, bluffing, blind bidding, bidding in general. Um, auction. That's good. You got ten. Yeah, 20 seconds to spare. All right. Final scores. Dave has 11 and the win. Yay. Uh, Brad comes in second with zero. And I feel like he did the best as far as effort versus the score. Yeah, totally. And then, Andrew, I'm sorry, you have my stat. But wait. Now I propose a challenge round. Okay, a challenge round. Yeah, I'm going to challenge Brad. Or you can challenge... You can, I, maybe I'll challenge Paul, actually. That might be fun. But Brad hasn't gone, so I'm going to challenge him first. Brad, I challenge, I challenge you to name seven cooperative games in 60 seconds. I don't know that I can, so... Well, that's the challenge. Okay. Here we go. Ready? Go. All right. Pandemic. Uh... <laughs> Pandemic season two, pandemic season three, pandemic season zero, pandemic season one. I don't know that there is a three. Um, sugar. Let's see what else. Uh, my brain is hurting. Oh, oh, what's a uh, crew? Um, thirty seconds. I know. Play co-op games. Um, I'm struggling. I'm just blanking. Oh. Right, you have ten seconds. It's not. It's not coming to me. I'm sorry, Brad. You've named five out of your seven. That's okay. Hey, I'm. I was. I got five. <laughs> we're, we're accepting the fact he didn't say legacy in those pandemics. Oh, oh, actually, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that that was a thing. To be honest, so. Well, I mean, not. I mean, I think it's acceptable. We know what you meant, but uh, yeah, you just said pandemic season one, where it's pandemic legacy, or. Oh, I see. I see. I see. No, that's legit. That's actually. Yeah. Have you tried? Have you tried any of the pandemic variants or spinoffs? Are you talking about me? Yeah. No, I own, <laughs> I think, two of them. Oh. Uh, like, one was a white elephant, and then, I don't know, I can't remember how we got them, but uh, 
they're actually they're actually pretty interesting. The one I find the most interesting crap. I'm blanking on the name. It's the one where you're in like the Netherlands and you have to put up dams and dikes for the um the flood. No, that's interesting. Oh no, I I was just talking about the Pandemic Legacy games. I no, I haven't. Also, there's Cthulhu and there's Fall of Rome as well. Oh, and Iberia and Iberia. I can't stand Lovecraft stuff. Ugh, I hate that. Thing. I just can't stand it. Oh yeah, that, ignore the Cthulhu one then. Yeah, not my jam. Um, uh, but uh, yeah. No. Sorry, have you played the mind? No. <gasps> I think you'd be really fun to play the mind with. I what what, what is? <laughs> it's a cooperative game where you try to count from one to one hundred, um, without talking to each other, more or less. Ooh! Oh my god, I totally forgot about that too. That sounds amazing. Yes. Oh my god, how did I forget Hanabi? I love Hanabi. And by proxy, letter jam. Ah. Uh... Now you know the crux of the game. The other version of the game was everyone would just keep bidding, and you would naturally stop at some point, but the blind bidding's a little faster. Yeah, no, and also less slaughtery. <laughs> I'd win the bid every time, yeah. Dave won, and rightly so, but yeah, the blind bid was uh, was a better way to go. And I, yeah, it was more fun to see the numbers come up. It was more fun for me. <laughs> I don't know about Honestly, the um, roundabout <laughs> bid probably would have been better for me, because I would have purposely not overbid people, just to see him go. Does no one have a challenge for Paul? Let me bring my timer back out. Yeah, what do we want, what do we want Paul to do? You guys have a category? Yeah, yeah, Brad's excited. I want him to name one. Oh! I think that's a good idea. Andrew anything. Let's see. Okay, I got one. Actually, games that came out before 2000. Before 2000? Before 2000? Yeah, before 2000. It's a long list. That's a large list. We'll have to, like, probably check those when he, when he names them. Well, but it's in 60 seconds, you know. How many do you want him to name? Eight. Eight? I honestly don't know if I can do eight. Oh, okay. Interesting. All right. Um, yeah. When you're ready. Settlers of Catan or Catan. Uh, Power is in there. Oh. Uh, Monopoly. Risk. They'll all be before 2000. Uh, let's see. Guess who? Operation. Sorry. All the lame ones before. And uh, whatever. Chess and go. There you go. There's, that's nine. That's nine. That's nine. Yeah, I thought that was a lot easier than... <laughs> I thought eight might have been low, but it depends on how quickly you go to like the classic games. Yeah. I was like, Catan was 95. You could have said, like, Candyland. <laughs> Candyland. Scra- Chess and Go are good. The Scrabble. No, that's good. I can just name Poker, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Texas Hold'em. Oh yeah, that would have been brutal. No, I, I no, I knew it was it was quote easy, but you know when you're under the gun, your brain can it can be tough. So. Well, I was I was wondering if you'd think of it or if we just go for like modern stuff. It's like oh, because you started with Catan, it'd be like oh, is it going to be like Acquire and Cosmic Encounter and stuff like that, and like stuff that might be played today in a or is it going to go like the game of Senate, the royal game of Ur. I'm not gonna lie, my heart, my heart uh, died a little when he started doing, you know, the the garbage games that we grew up with. I was hoping more for, you know, Catan, and then, you know, like, ch- yeah, chess and go and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's cool. My mind drifted to the card get to like card games with like the playing cards, euchre, hearts, bridge. Euchre was the standard growing up in Indiana. That was like the game. <laughs> Sheep's head, whist. A oh, whist. <laughs> you need more than one deck for that, but yeah. 
Cool. Well, good job, Paul. Thanks. All right, that's going to do it for us. I hope you guys enjoyed our ridiculous game show. I want to thank our special guest, Brad, for playing and his insights on various lifestyle games. If you're listening on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe. You can find us on Board Game Geek. We are the impromptu board gaming podcast, guild number 4233. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please email us at impromptuboardgamingpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, impromptuboardgamingpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.